saying that we were going to get into the movies. Yeah, and I'm only going to get into a few of them because there were way too goddamn many for me to really be interested in telling you this clone version or this clone version in the early studio system. It, it's a good metric to know in a, in a story arc. Where should I be? Oh, there's Beast. I should step over here. Uh, yeah. Some point, at some point, I'm gonna have to sit down with you, like, and force you, like, pump you full of coffee, and be like, "No, okay, look." Uh, and are swiftly and brutally put down by the Minutemen who use bayonets to get their point across. Well done, there. I'm good, Damien, and I'm also glad that I got your name right this time. I apologize for that one TikTok video. Men of this generation wound up serving a whole lot of them as a percentage of the population because of the war, because of a whole lot of other stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and actually, in his case, it was pre-war. But, but you know. I was joking. Did he seriously join the American Navy? He did. Fuck it. Also, the father of a five-year-old boy, and as I am sitting out here on my back patio to record this evening, um, I'm I'm noticing for the first time in a long while just exactly how much stuff my son has, hmm. and like one of the. One of the things I have struggled with since becoming a dad is being worried about whether um, I will be able to, or if I am succeeding at um, providing for my son all of the things that I want him to have. And I'm sure, you know, being a father yourself, there are those moments where you really, you really wonder, or you really feel like you're just not doing it. Like, like you, you feel like it's not, you know, it's not working the way you want it to, you know, and now I'm actually sitting out here looking at all of this stuff and I'm like, you know what? As far as, as, as far as the material side of things, which I, which I worry about, um, we're doing okay. Cause, oh my Lord, this boy has so much stuff. So, you know, I feel pretty good about providing for my son emotionally. I feel, you know, fine about, uh, you know, not fine. I, I spend less time worrying about, mm. Um, his, his emotional needs, because I work very hard at that. Um, 
but I always feel a little inadequate. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what it's rooted in, but yeah. Anyway, my son has so much stuff like, hmm. holy cow. Um, and yeah, that's just, that's kind of what has struck me sitting out here, uh, while we've, while we've been talking. How about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a U.S. history teacher up here in Northern California. Um, today, uh, I was helping my son uh, to mince garlic. I'm the sous chef when he chefs. Um, okay. And we have a garlic mincer, which is, you know, a hand-pressed one, right? Right, right, right. Okay. Oh, my, fun, my son does have cerebral palsy, so gripping things is harder for him. He has low low tone, essentially, and hypertonicity. So okay. everything's tight, but weakened. Um, so that's just a reality that he has to deal with. Uh, okay. And so for him, the mechanics of squeezing these things together don't necessarily make sense. So he was, so it's a, you you put it in the crook of your hand and you just squeeze it against your your, your hand pad, right? And you just squeeze and boom, yeah. you've got your garlic mints. He was using yeah. thumb and forefinger. And I was like, no, no, you got to use all your hand. And so he did thumb and his four fingers. And I was like, no, 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 look. And I I took it and I, I grabbed it. And I said, now try like that. And I showed him. And so he does. And he's having a hard time. I said, use both hands. And so he holds them both together. I'm like, no, put these hands behind and, you know, hold it. And, you know, basically mm. like in a sword position. And, yeah. and he's trying. And then he slides his fingers out. So it looks more like he's playing a clarinet again. And I said, <laughs> do it like you're choking a snake and so he tries and he still struggles but it kind of has some success and then he asked okay. he's like have you choked a snake before and i said i choked the snake all the time son that's why there's only two of you and it takes them a couple seconds <laughs> How how <laughs> venomous was the look your daughter gave you? She no, when I make like jokes like that, she can't help but like bark out laughing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those aren't the ones okay. that she elbows me for. Oh, yeah. uh, so it's more okay. of like, oh God, you know, like <laughs> so and William <laughs> is like he's he starts laughing really hard too. Um yeah. So <laughs> Anyway, uh, so all right, it's. Uh, <laughs> I can I can hear my wife shrieking at me for making that. Like in another, I don't know, four or five years, yeah. When the temptation strikes to make a joke like that in front of my son, I can hear my wife shrieking. Oh what no! Are you, you know. Oh. Like, oh thing. my god! Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, that would, that would, that would not, that would, <laughs> like, I can think it and, right. and I can, you can I can tell her go later. To her, right. I can, I can go up to her and go like, well, you know, I could tell him and, but like, that would, that would not, oh, I could hear her voice right now. You not better fly. not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I, I, so. I, I, I would like to say that this is the, one of the silver linings to being a single parent, but I don't think there's a person alive who knows me who thinks that that would have stayed my hand. <laughs> yeah, no, everybody. Yeah. I, yeah. I can hear, I can hear producer George 
yeah. audibly shaking his head like, no. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, well, <laughs> that'll be the high point emotionally of the show. You ready to dive into some really depressing murder? Oh, fuck. I realized that we are finally <sighs> doing what all successful podcasts have done, and that What's is doing that? true crime. Uh, so, I know. Wow. Yeah, I know. Not, I'm also disappointed in us. You're not wrong. Um, yeah. And yeah, I feel tawdry now. Yeah. Um, in in a way, and here's the deal. This mm-hmm. is the really funny part. The fact that we both have that reaction to that mm-hmm. realization mm-hmm. just proves what a couple of pointy-headed academics we are. Well, and why this will never be you know, a successful podcast. Yeah, why we're, yeah, yes. we're just not going to make money off of this thing. No. Yeah, it's true. No. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right. When last I left you, there was a straight to DVD movie in 2007. And it was a horror movie, a horror movie, horror movie. Now, here's here's the interesting thing. Sure. And I've been I've been thinking about this Mm because because the fact that 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 was a horror movie about a forest demon Mm -hmm. named Pumpkinhead. Right. (laughs) Like you do. (laughs) Like you do. Yeah. But you know this the the these historical events took place in Appalachia, which I'm just gonna say basically is no shit the spookiest part of the United States. Oh yeah, like like Appalachia and and the middle of the deserts of the Southwest. I would I would argue probably okay. have the the reputations for being no kidding like that's where all the hinky shit happens right <laughs> sure you know if if you look at internet culture it's like oh you know if you and i don't even remember what it was i was reading earlier today but on a thread on the internet somebody was saying oh yeah no i live in appalachia and no the kids don't get to play outside until dark like n- no it just does not happen Interesting. you know you you be inside before the sun sets cuz spooky shit right right um, and, uh, so it, it kind of makes sense that at some point I'm, I'm in thinking about it, I'm kind of amazed that it took as long as it did mm. for the Hatfield McCoy feud to become the backdrop for a horror film simply because so much of the folklore from that part of the country has this, like as a, as an amateur historian, folklorist, anthropology type person, like this fascinating, mm-hmm. um, you know, ghost, spirit, spook, lore sure. that is this amazing um, uh, blend of what you get when you have Irish and Scotch Irish immigrants uh, moving into the same area and intermarrying with freed African you know, former slaves sure. who, who, who bring each bring their own very rich folklore with them. And, and it turns into what there is now. Mm-hmm. And so, and don't forget I mean, if, the people who already lived there. Yes. And, right? and the lore of, of the native American, yes, the Aboriginal yeah. folks there, the native Americans living there, you know, and like, of course it became, the backdrop for a horror movie. Why didn't it happen sooner? Well, and I would think topographically, you know, there are some things at play here too. You have yeah. lots of rivers. 
You yes. have lots of forests and you have a fuck ton of caves. Mm-hmm. Like you've got all mm-hmm. those things happening. And then yeah. you have people who are fairly unaccountable to society living in the spaces between towns. Yeah. So you've got that and you've got uh, the wilderness, you've got creatures. Um, I just realized that uh, with my adding in the the Native American folk, uh, yeah. the indigenous peoples to that area. I feel we just described that I forgot oh, that. Yeah. Well, um, we just described the the three basic uh, ethnic components that made up the Melungeon uh, people who live out of that area. Um, I don't mm, know if you know mm-hmm. much about Melungeon folk, but mm-hmm. dark hair, tawny skin, bright blue eyes, yeah. um, thicker lips, broader noses. It's uh, it because white supremacy is a hell of a drug. If mm-hmm. you were Melungeon, you would claim whiteness as much as you possibly could. Yeah. And you would fear them them attracting you into being not white or being indigenous or being black. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is rumored that in fact Babe Ruth, if you look at his features, uh, was of Melungeon descent. It is also possible that Warren Harding and Abraham Lincoln both had Melungeon descent. There there was a whole dive Ooh. I did actually on that ethnic group uh, a few years back, actually. Um, but it was just kind of interesting to to see who gets to be white, who gets to be American, who gets to oh, be yeah. Yeah, and having yeah. it play out literally in in, in human beings. Um, if you just look up a picture of Melungeon folks, um, you'll see precisely what I'm talking about. And it looks like several people that held high office uh, who came from that area. Uh, but yes, you do have lots of caves and shit. And I wonder if that's also not true for the Southwest. I mean, you had a lot of escarpments and, and caves and stuff like that. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of empty space and a lot of places where you're living, you and your family mm-hmm. are living miles away from the nearest person that you know lives there. Right. Right. And uh, nature does weird shit. Yeah. And well, and so do people unaccountable yeah. to other people. Like yeah, there's, this is true. Yeah. And it, speaking of the American Southwest, you also have a place where freed black people could mm. flee to, mm-hmm. where destitute white people could flee to, um, and yeah. where natural resources were extracted at a very high yeah. degree. Yeah. Um so both of these places have a lot of these things in common. Uh just depends on the humidity you want, you know. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, the aridity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's it's kind of okay. an interesting thing. Yeah. There there's a podcast called um oh what is it? Um I think it's Monsters of Appalachia or uh what is it? It's um Oh God! Old Gods of Appalachia—that's what it is. Ooh, um, yeah. Gabriel okay. Cruz and I were talking about it. Um, he really likes it. Um, and it's uh, it's essentially like deep, deep horror, like Cthulhu type horror, but Appalachian. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah that'd work. So, I yeah. recommend that to people later. But all right, cool. Yeah. So anyway, uh, two thousand seven. Right. You have Pumpkinhead. Uh, so, uh. Uh, you know, and again, you you brought up very specifically uh, West African um, 
ghost stories, you know, the, mm-hmm. the several traditions that lead to uh, the Loa pantheon. Um, mm-hmm. If that's if that's a term that could apply to it. Um, I think as a as a form of shorthand painting with a broad brush, it's broad brush. It's pantheon. You know, yeah, kind of. Yeah. But you you have, you know, Dahomey traditions. You have, uh, you know, a lot of West African traditions of mm-hmm. being ported over and then colliding with uh, fae culture um, amongst the Scots-Irish. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then, of course, uh, with the animism and the uh, ancestor reverence uh, that that pervaded uh, the indigenous folk who lived in that area. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. But in 2012, yes. um, we finally get to really the the miniseries that got me thinking about this, uh, Hatfields and McCoys, and with Amberson and, right? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Kevin Costner's uh, un, unwitting, that's uh, what I'm looking for, uh, audition for Yellowstone. Yes, yes. Yeah. Where he starts playing old, grizzled, shitty guys. Um, or patriarchs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really the History Channel's last gasping attempt at anything historical, uh, because by this point, UFO, Nazi archaeology, and abandoned loot shows were taking over. Aliens. Yeah. Uh, in April of 2011, Barack Obama announced that he would run for a second term as president. Uh, and in fact, there were no serious challengers on the Democratic side, with only seven states fielding any other possible names. So. If you've ever thought in the last six years that, wow, it's really weird that they're not even going to have a primary on one side, you had de facto that um, yeah. several other times when there have been other people on, yeah. you know, who who are going for a second term. Now, I say de facto that because I do think it does matter that you still have a primary system within a party mm-hmm. in a two party duopoly. Um, but. Anyway, no, no, there were real names. Uh, by April of 2012, he had secured the delegate majority needed for his party uh, for him to run for president under their banner. This was unsurprising, of course. Uh, Barack Obama had courted emerging groups of voters, too. He didn't campaign very much for this so-called ind- independent vote. So he actually is making a departure from the Clintonian uh, triangulation. His his campaign uh, hired a tech industry folks rather than political folks um in short he ran the first modern campaign uh and successful campaign uh, capitalizing on what he'd already done to win the first one uh he was the first to do things in his 2008 campaign and i covered a lot of that in the v series Mm -hmm. so i'm not going to belabor the point um he also obama used nearly double what mitt romney his main opponent on the republican side had used in june of 2012 alone um and it's that campaign that campaign the romney campaign the romney effort the republican race to see who would get to lose to obama <laughs> i think that's the real secret where that that tells us why this series existed at this time really okay yes I, I think it's the Republican campaign. Um, Ron Paul, Buddy Romer, and Rick Santorum of the WWF Santorums um, yeah. combined for roughly 1.5% of what Mitt Romney used in June of 2012. And now when so, you say, when you say mm-hmm. used, you talked about the amount of money spent? Yes, money okay. spent as okay. well as uh, staffers. 
uh, staffers' efforts on the internet. Okay. okay. But largely, I'm speaking in money. Like, we're okay. going to uh, simplify, yes, money. Um, it was obvious that both uh, of both uh, Romney and Obama, from the quality of their campaigns and from the tone that they took uh, from the debates, uh, that they were the front runners. Um, also, Newt Gingrich was in those debates uh, with Romney, Romer, Santorum, and Paul, uh, despite the money issue, uh, while Romer actually didn't make it into the debates, uh, largely because he couldn't get the 5% from multiple national polls that were needed to get to the front, to the stage. So as the sh field was shrinking, Romney took, or uh, not Romney, uh, uh, Gingrich took over Romer. Romer raised more money. Okay. Gingrich got more press. Okay, well, because Gingrich was was a name, yes, that people recognized, yes. Whereas Romer, who's who's this schmuck? Like, yeah. In fact, when know. I when I started doing this research to kind of look into this, I'd forgotten about Romer. <laughs> I had forgotten about Romer. Yeah, and and talking about him right now, I remember, I vaguely remember the name, but I couldn't put a face to it. I can't tell you what state he was from, even. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, don't feel bad. Um, so a lot of these debates on the Republican side featured Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum going after Newt Gingrich for being a part of the government. Right. Big, because big government. you're you're yeah, you're you're run, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're you're running you're running for the most important elected office in the government. And you're gonna do that by trying to vilify anybody who's served in government because government is bad. Well, and again. Santorum, if I recall correctly, is a senator from Pennsylvania. Yes. And Romney had been the governor of Massachusetts. Yeah. But yeah. it's Gingrich who's big government. Gingrich which, who's big government. It's not even, you can't even say, oh, well, he held federal office because I'm pretty sure Santorum was a, a senator. Yeah, um, but he was. I, yeah. He was. Uh, so, and and also, yeah, you know, um, his his name got uh intentionally uh it, it, via an engineered uh poll uh got mm -hmm. turned into slang for a for a sexual not act but byproduct yeah. yeah yeah that's neither here nor there he was the third highest ranking republican center senator in his final term he re what really yes. yes wow yeah and yet See, they're going is... after gingrich for being Gingrich, Gingrich, who famously was, I mean, you know, the petulant man baby who who shut the government down because, you know, he he didn't get enough uh, attention from the president at the time. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, come on, like yeah. this is the guy you're going to call big government anyway. Yeah. So they're attacking him. On its face. Meanwhile, Gingrich in the same debates is attacking the press for protecting Obama by asking Gingrich about how shitty he'd been to his dying wife and his other wife when they were asking him questions about his character. Um, famously, he got cheered roundly for that. But, he, yeah. So oh. his, his his defense against, like, hey, you were really shitty to your wife while she was dying, and you were shitty to your next wife, too. Do you think that since presidential candidates should have some form of character... Do you think that's a, a a problem? Would you like to respond to that? 
He said, no, I wouldn't. And I think it's a shame that you're protecting Obama by attacking me this way. And everybody sees it. And he got massively cheered by the audience. That is Trump meets Ubu Roy level nonsense. Well, I genuinely think that this campaign paved the way for Trumpism because Gingrich I can showed believe that. that the 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 bar was movable. You could jump on it. <laughs> you can you could reach up and tug it down yes. real hard. Yeah. So, so, but like, did did anybody like beg the question or ask the question he was begging? Like, how is that defending Obama? No. Fuck. No, because he was going for sound bites because he was trying to to get his name queue up so uh, he could sell more books because right, that's really okay. why people run for president. Trump famously yeah. did not expect to win. Like if you read no. the books about the campaign, he was trying to lose so that he could, but trying to lose closely so that he could then create his own network to show. Oh, you know, yeah. It was yeah. all a money grab. It was well, all a grift. And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> And and if you and if you look at him, who the hell was uh, the speaker of the house that was showing him around? Boehner. I, I compl- uh No, no, it was after Boehner. Um, Ryan. Yeah, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. Yeah. When Paul Ryan was showing him around, you know, uh, during the transition. And and Trump just has this look on his face like, what the fuck am I doing here? Oh, Melania famously cried when he won. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're Ron Paul, another federally elected legislator who also is going after everyone for being hawkish. At least he had a leg to stand on there. Um, he also yeah. uh, went after Mitt Romney for being a corporate shill, which is fair. But then he also yeah. went after most folks for being part of the big government. Again, Ron Paul, I the representative senator. or senator from Texas. Senator. Yeah. So Texas or Tennessee? He was from Texas. Rand Texas. Paul is from Rand Paul. Rand Paul's from Kentucky. I'm sorry. Yeah, Kentucky. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So in the final two oh debates, it really turns into everybody knows it's Romney versus Gingrich. Romney is the business successful, polite, and predatory conservative. And Gingrich is the legislative firebrand who changed the way that American governed because of his efforts to secure power. And he was a mean and nasty shit heel to both of his spouses and coworkers alike. And yeah. nobody liked, but many who voted for him appreciated because he was more upfront with his aggrievement at a black man being president. Such lovely individuals. Yeah. Both men were attacking each other and then attacking Obama. Um, so just, this is, these are the two guys that are vying for the, the ticket to go, go fight in Washington, Mm. the business successful, polite, but predatory guy. And the other guy who's a, an asshole verbally and in all other ways, now these fit with certain mythologies that people have anyway, uh, Gingrich opened the Tampa debate by defending his record as speaker of the house. Uh, He repeated a prior claim that he had made before that said, quote, when I was speaker, we had four consecutive balanced budgets. Uh, I checked the fact checking on that. Two of those balanced budgets occurred after he left office. (laughs) 
yeah. Romney went on the attack immediately in the early January debate in Tampa, disgracing Gingrich for his record, declaiming that, quote, at the end of four years, he had to resign in disgrace. Uh, it, it is more complex than that, but broad brushes and all. Um, yeah. So Gingrich then tried to defend his work with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac since this was January of 2012. Those two entities certainly drew a lot of criticism for how badly they'd helped fuck up the housing market. Newt Gingrich sought to downplay his work for Freddie Mac, which was a government-chartered mortgage company, by saying it was a government-sponsored enterprise, just like credit unions and rural electric cooperatives. However, uh, the list of government-sponsored enterprises that he worked with was vanishingly small, and it did not include credit unions or rural electric co-ops. So while he's claiming their their legitimacy, he didn't work with them. You didn't. Yeah. You didn't know you worked. You worked with this one, which is the shit show. Yeah, it so... would be like us saying that we have a podcast, which is kind of like radio, like what you would hear on Howard Stern. That doesn't mean that we are terrestrial radio or satellite no, radio, or satellite radio, or successful in the or... way that we are successful, <laughs> like making money. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, housing had tanked by all measures in 2009, the Nadir being April of 2009. Uh, in fact, that was largely what helped Obama across the finish line in the, the first time that he ran, which was the repudiation of the government and the party that had been in charge in the last half of the 2000s. By January of 2012, the housing market was still bouncing quite a bit, but overall the trend was climbing back up. It was still down one, up two, down one, up two kind of thing, uh, but it was climbing. So any connection to housing for a politician running for office in 2012, especially prior to the long climb up that would still be a couple of years out, was the bog of stench kind of issue. Now, if you add to that, Romney's calling out of Newt Gingrich for lobbying on behalf of Freddie Mac uh, or Freddie May. Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Yeah. Newt Gingrich, of course, had to get nasty in order to score some points back. And this continued late into the January debate in Jacksonville. And by the time they got to Mesa, Arizona, the debates were largely Romney polishing his image and Gingrich trying to keep the faith of his supporters by being a bigger prick. Wow. I wonder what that presages. Mm-hmm. I, now, I feel foreshadowing here. A bit, a bit. Now, a fun fact, Newsmax Media was going to sponsor a debate in December 29th of 2011 in Des Moines, Iowa. Guess who the moderator was supposed to be? Not Donald Trump. Yes, Donald Trump. Fuck you, what? Nope. Yep. Bullshit. Really? Yeah. Now, I say supposed to because it didn't happen. Yeah. In fact, the only candidates who accepted the invitation to participate were Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum. <laughs> wow. To put that in context, Michelle Bachman refused. <laughs> Michelle Bachman, the prototype of uh, the gal from uh, Denver. What's her name? Uh oh, god damn it! I know I forgot her name too. Just yeah, lit it uh, out of my head. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. The, the how, one who claims to be related happy. to uh to Stan Lane. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, Lauren Bobert. 
Yeah, Bobert. I knew it was so, a B-O-E yeah. thing. Yeah, Bobert. Yeah. Crazy-eyed brunette uh, firebrand who uh, hates black people but makes it about the American people. Um, allegedly. So Reince Priebus, uh, who had been the head of the RNC, um, he said that Donald Trump as a moderator would be, quote, problematic, end quote. When a guy named Reince mm-hmm. says something like that, mm-hmm. that means something. It I'm does. Just saying, like, dude, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, but he was also the White House Chief of Staff under uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I know. <laughs> so, I know because so because here's he went the thing. from problematic to oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I'll take your money. Mm-hmm. Um. All of these, all of these assholes, every single one of them, I, the, the only, there are only a few Republican leading lights mm-hmm. um, who get any credit for consistency at all. Yeah. Uh, um, Romney is one of them. Yes. He was like, <laughs> Trump. Trump is a joke. He doesn't belong here. He is, right. He's dangerous and bullshit. Like all, all the rest of them. But even the he went to them. have dinner with him. Remember? Well, he yes. Got, he had yeah. to kiss the ring and, yeah, and oh, then yeah. Trump embarrassed him by being like, no, I'm not going to have that guy on my staff at all. Yeah. And I, I, I dare say Romney thought that he was going to be the adult in the room. Yeah. But still. Yeah. yeah you know, <sighs> And again, you could say McCain also did that too. He he stood on principle. But another principle McCain stood on was swearing that if uh, Hillary Clinton got elected the first day, they would impeach her. So yeah, even the people who stand on principle when it comes to Donald Trump, that's the best thing we can say about them sometimes. And that's a real low bar. Yeah, well, as as yeah. uh, Gingrich proved, you can grab that fucker and just yank it down. Do the to, opposite to, of salmon crotch uh, level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could pull it down to where you can't see it. Yeah. Um. So, uh, okay. So mm. Gingrich and Santorum uh, accepted. Bachman refused. Priebus uh, said what he said. Ron Paul's campaign de- delivered a refusal statement. Actually, said quote. Mr. Trump's participation will contribute to an unwanted circus-like atmosphere. Again, say what you will about Ron Paul. Uh, he does have an image that he maintains of being principled. I don't yeah. think he he honestly keeps that image, but um, I he gets closer than most, um, yeah. which again, low bar. John Huntsman's campaign followed up, and I had to think, John who? But John Huntsman, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, he, representative, I think so. Yeah, um, he he followed up, uh, and he says we have declined to participate in the quote presidential apprentice debate uh, with the Donald. Remember, Donald Trump called himself the Donald for a while. Wow. So yeah. now I'm trying to remember. Mm-hmm. This is in. Is this is this in 2012 or is this 2011? This is the 2012. Okay. Yeah. Um, Huntsman was the governor of Utah. That's what it was. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> so um, 
what we're so this is this is 2012. Technically, it's 2011. Trump, it's December of okay, 2011 was when this right. was booked for. So all these guys are refusing okay. in the beginning of December. Now, when was it that Obama famously embarrassed Trump at the press club? Earlier in 2011. Okay. Okay. So that, mm-hmm. that establishes the timeline and why Donald Trump like gave a shit. Yeah. Okay. Got it. All right. Now, Donald Trump, uh, never one to take such well-founded criticism, said, quote, few people take uh, Ron Paul seriously and many of his views and presentation make him a clown-like candidate. I am glad he and John Huntsman, who has been in, who has inconsequential poll numbers or a chance of winning, uh, will not be attending the debate and wasting the time of the viewers who are trying very hard to make a very important decision. You know, even even when it's your voice delivering, I know that, you can still hear it in the uh... the cadence of mm-hmm. everything and the tone of everything, just makes me want to reach through the internet and slap somebody. <laughs> like, now, Rick Santorum God, went the other yeah. way from Ron Paul okay. and John Huntsman. He said, "Quote: I'm not defending Newsmax's decision to put Donald Trump in there. If you look at the debate where Jim Cramer is screaming at people, maybe Donald will surprise us both." And what he was referencing was Jim Cramer uh, in the November Auburn Hills, Michigan debate that CNBC hosted, where eight people were debating and talking over each other and wouldn't answer questions. It's also famously the one where Rick Perry couldn't remember which three departments he promised to uh, to abolish, one of which he became in charge of. Also, Jim Cramer wasn't moderating that debate, though. Uh, That was John Harwood and Maria uh, Baritomo. But do go on, Mr. Santorum. Uh, It's a moot point since Trump himself pulled out as moderator on December 13th, 2011. All right. All right. So you've got a Republican primary field that is just finishing up in February of 2012, suffering from something called the Gary Johnson rule, which was a Slate magazine's attempt to explain how the debate rules seem to have been specifically constructed to keep him out. And more broadly, to focus instead on only eight acceptable establishment-endorsed candidates and no outsiders. So that's all going okay. on. Now, all meanwhile, right. over on the History Channel, the History Channel, uh, which had started in the 1990s and came onto the cable field in 95. History documentaries were all over the place. My junior high school, uh, my no, I wasn't in junior high. I was a junior in high school, pardon me. My junior in high school heart was all sorts of happy And, of course, this came with some limitations. Uh, They didn't have the rights to, say, PBS American Experience documentaries uh, or other such things. But the documentaries they did have the rights to were pretty solid, I would say. But they were also very World War II focused. And at first, this wasn't bad from a marketing perspective. Consider who had access to cable during the day in 1995. Um, But eventually, they get dubbed the Hitler Channel because of the programming willingness to cater to its audience. And after a solid decade of this, they began to expand their programming to things like modern marvels of engineering, the history of machines, lots of tech type stuff. Uh, And and I certainly skewed away from that because I've never really been big into that. But every once in a while, it would be like, oh, cool. That's what the Bismarck looks like. Um, Now, by 2008, the History Channel leaned hard into rebranding themselves just as, quote, history. So not the History Channel, just history 
history. Yeah. While skewing away from history at the same time. It's kind of like when we decided to start calling him the Secretary of Defense instead of Secretary yeah, of Secretary War. War. Yeah. Right at the time we stopped ever fighting a defensive war. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's when we started not declaring war, but certainly not paying defense. Yeah. Um, same thing. So uh they're rebranding themselves. Uh they're expanding into mythology, which okay, mm. I, I can dig, which also leads to UFOs and aliens and possibly disasters, the history of superstitions. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially as 2012 drew drew closer. Uh started talking about secret societies, alternate history, dinosaurs, nature. Like, and that's because the learning channel got into like, you know, the dwarf throwing channel um, <laughs> and, and the discovery channel kind of fell away from animals yeah, and more toward and, Mythbusters all day, every day. Yeah, true. So, um, so yeah, uh, it, you know, they're, they're getting into true crime over on history. Uh, this rebranding coincided with the Democratic primary contest of 2008 heating up, by the way. From January 2008 through March of 2008, 51 of the 80 different caucuses, primaries, and state conventions were held deciding between Obama and Clinton, with neither getting any kind of a runaway victory at any stage of the campaign by that point. Hmm. And what was wild to me was that history was not really using this time to bring out documentaries about primaries or elections or any of the truly historical things that were happening for the Democratic ticket. But... Since the advent of the Osbournes, The Simple Life, Hogan Knows Best, and so on, the shift away from produced and scripted documentaries had already been keening history toward a more reality-based product and away from a history-based product. And that tickles me to no end uh, because, like I said, it's when Secretary of War turns to Secretary of Defense, right? Um, and then they're claiming we're, defend we're, we're fighting for defense by declaring yeah. these wars, but they're not wars. Yeah. So very similar. Now, the last man to hold uh, the title of, if I recall correctly, hmm, of Secretary of War was a man named Kenneth Royal. So he was our final okay. Secretary of War. All right. He was an asshole. Uh Okay. I, I mean, you know, look at the job. Yeah. Like, but I mean, there's other people who are like, yeah, war is fucking terrible. Let's get this done with. Right. Right. Um, right. But he did the wrong thing for the right reason. And then he did the wrong thing for the wrong reason. Uh, he argued for the defense of Nazi spies and saboteurs to be carried out in civilian court. I actually think his reasoning was right here, despite the fact that they're Nazis. Because, but um, he was saying, no, we don't do secret trials. Even okay. if the president orders secret trials, that's not okay. And okay. he even wrote a note to Roosevelt to tell him to reconsider and listed his reasons. So again, I think he did the wrong thing for the right reason. Um, okay. He was overruled at every level. Uh, and, and I say this is the wrong thing because Nazis don't get a defense because they're Nazis. Um, but... Again, being anti-secret trial, I could understand that part. The other time, uh, at the end of his career, for which he lost his job as Secretary of War, 
is that he refused to implement Executive Order 9981. Do you remember which one that was? Integration of the Armed Forces? Yes, sir. Okay. He also refused to let the documentary on Nuremberg see the light of day because it conflicted with American policy at the time, which is deeply disturbing. That's twice he's come out kind of standing for Nazis. Yeah. And again, I think the context in which he stood for them, again, I disagree with him standing for Nazis in any way, but okay, cool. Yeah, I get your anti, like, I will, I will let you hold a sign saying no secret treat or no secret trials. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the second you start shouting that, you know, these Nazis deserve anything uh, approaching civility, uh, I'm going to turn my sign on you. Okay. Fair. So history was beginning to focus on a more non-historical content uh, around this time, around 2008. Uh, Ice road truckers. You might remember. I do. Was that that early? Yeah. Axemen and Pawn Stars were all garnering for attention and criticism for the network. Forbes ran articles criticizing it for ancient aliens and other pseudo-historical and pseudo-scientific sensationalism. Uh, And this would continue for years. And history seemed to continue with its programming choices. and, And really, I think the branding and the programming being in conflict with each other was the problem. Um, if they changed their name to something else, and I don't think it would have been a problem, you know, like we kind of yeah. go back to the, the the Hogan trials, right? Uh, yeah. People couldn't get the idea of kayfabe. Yeah. And the result was they were very confused that Hulk Hogan had a 10 inch penis, but Terry Bollea, who was on the stand talking about being Hulk Hogan, did not have a 10 inch penis. So, yeah, right. If they changed their name to something else, it wouldn't have been a problem. But this is also around the time that they began to produce their own video game content. Trying to get in on that sweet, sweet video game money. Um, I counted 10 produced uh, that were produced from 2006 to 2007. Four of them were first-person shooters. Two of them were Civil War for first-person shooters. One was a World War II and one was a Vietnam-based first-person shooter. Uh, okay. There was there was one W World War One dogfight uh, game. There was one real time strategy civilization type game based in Egypt, and one episodic runner video game based on ice road truckers, and three real time tactical strategy games. One of which, or one or two of which, were Civil War. Um, okay. Also, I think people are crazy lazy uh, because documentaries are not objective. Uh, they're simply not objective. They that. The the thing that you choose to put in front of us is making an editorial choice, right? Yeah. Um, but because the early days of the History Channel were saturated with black and white, grainy footage uh, documentaries, this carried the idea of objectivity to the audience about the various subjects of the documentaries, right? So it's it's so old, it's a piece of history, therefore it must be accurate, it must be objective, I can remember one that was a, a a propaganda film on the Battle of Britain that they showed. And I'm like, oh, this is a great propaganda film on the Battle of Britain. It's told from the British perspective. I'm in favor of the British when it came to the Battle of Britain. But it's clearly propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the audience was like, okay, cool. These are documentaries and these are objective. And, and it kind of trained us to think that black and white footage made an objective documentary. Okay. 
Yeah. And I think people accepted those as uninterrogated facts. And so many of the reactions to history showing shows about dwarf hoarding UFO hunting grandchildren of Nazi inventors who were seeking dot matrix printed ASCII erotica of Mesoamerican temple blueprints were people telling on themselves for not knowing how documentaries work in the first place. You know, the funny thing is that whole combination of things you just mentioned would be word salad in any other context. Very true. But like, no, I could follow that whole chain. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Um, Chuck Grassley, I think, uh, should should look himself in the mirror with this. Anyway, histor- history is an <laughs> unfortunately named network that changed with the times and forgot to rebrand itself successfully. And I don't mind a network changing with the times. I do mind it holding on to the legitimacy that it once had. So we get to May of 2012. History released its first scripted drama. Now, in America because it actually had released the Kennedy scripted drama in international markets. Yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. We didn't get to see that. Why not? I don't know. I could not hunt down why that was. I think it might just have to do with the fact that the Kennedy family has more impact here than it has in Mm. England. Okay. Okay. Huh. So... The Hatfields and McCoys come out in May of 2012. It was a star-studded, well-produced, and seemed to Ken a well-produced affair that seemed to Ken a lot closer to the actual history of what happened. Uh, though tons of compression of events and characters happened, as well as a lot of speculation on motives that ran throughout it, right? But yeah. it definitely was a genuine effort at making a good series one that was compelling to watch. Okay. Yeah. So it was not the ABC 1975 one. Oh my God. It was not our hospitality. It was nothing like what we'd seen on TV. It was not Rosanna McCoy. Um, it definitely painted the main villain as being Perry Klein, by the way. Uh, they kind of represented him as a, have you seen the series by the way? I have actually. Okay, um, when, when my wife and I first started dating, at one point when uh, one of the first times that I stayed over. Uh, I assume stayed over. Gotcha. Um, one of the first times that I stayed over at her place, um, we, we watched it. We mm-hmm. sat down and, and that was our, that was our Netflix as it were. Um, and, and she had already seen it. She had it on, I think it was on DVD. At oh, that point. wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and the first Early time Perry doctor. Klein showed up. Yeah. <laughs> the first time Perry Klein showed up on screen, she mm-hmm. said, Oh, this guy, this guy's a shit stirrer right here. Yes. <laughs> it was the way that so, his mustache yeah. curled. I mean, it was very oh, dastardly. Yeah. Oh, and it was yeah. the, the like nasal smoothness of his voice and oh, yeah. his out of place accent. It sounded more Georgian. Yeah, it was it yeah. was a a remarkable bit yeah. of of characterization. Yeah. There. I agree. I agree. 
Um, so he's this true shyster of a lawyer for folks who oh. haven't seen it, right? Oh, yeah. And he's trying to defraud the very canny Hatfields, like almost immediately. And then he's playing on an intransigent McCoy, uh, intransigent McCoy, yeah. uh, who couldn't let go of his anger at Devil Ants Hatfield for betraying their oath to the Confederacy because the oath mattered. Because Devil Ants, right. right, yeah, you know, he Left. abandoned his post, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and he did so to come back home and further his own plans, right? Which included, um, you know, timberland and stuff like that. Meanwhile, Perry Klein is playing on McCoy to further his own plans, uh, yep. which is to marry uh, Rosanna McCoy, who was many years his younger and his semi-close cousin, according to the series. Right. Yeah. In reality, the only relation I could actually find that was Perry Klein's uh, sister, Martha, who married Ranolf's brother, Asa Harmon, uh, along with three of his older, other siblings who married McCoy's and his own daughter, who would end up marrying a Hatfield. Yeah. The series also painted Tolbert McCoy as a very hot-headed man, unrelenting and illog Ill illogical most of the time, uh, with that kind of charisma that bullies people into coming along with him. Um, mm. it, it portrayed Ellison Hatfield as the nicest of the Hatfield brothers, the strongest physically and the most willing to make peace. So his death was all the more shocking and dramatic when he was specifically forbidding good Lias and another relative from getting in the brawl, uh, which turned knifey out of their view while Ellison was fighting off two other McCoy sons and ended with his being shot in an unreasonable escalation. Um, Nancy McCoy was yep. portrayed as this scheming and vindictive type, the kind of carving out the archetype of the Ozark witch that we saw elsewhere. Right. She had a heart filled with hate, and her sexual craving of bad Frank Phillips was primal and driven by his murder of Hatfields. Uh, Jenna Malone did a phenomenal job. Yeah, no, everybody involved in that acted the hell out of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's not a single person... The only person I would say that was in any way wooden was Rosanna McCoy. And I think that came down to bad directing, quite honestly. And and I would she agree. had the weakest writing. Yeah, I would agree. And um, Bill Paxton actually succeeds in making Randall McCoy sympathetic. Very. Like, like, like the pathos is strong with this oh, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bad Frank Phillips. Uh, was portrayed as this seedy and ambitious, ruthless man uh, whom Randall McCoy despised because he was in it yep. only for the money. There was no honor in what he was doing. Randall McCoy himself, uh, by the way, Randall is is short for Randolph, yeah. uh, but everybody turned Randall into Randall. Um, but Randall McCoy, uh, like I said before, above, was intransigent, but he was deeply moral and he just kept getting bad break after bad break. To the point yeah. where he externalizes his frustrations uh, into a borderlander clannish disdain for anyone who doesn't measure up to his morality and sense of duty. Uh, the avatar of that, of course, being both Rosanna and Devil Ants Hatfield. Uh, Devil Ants was the reluctant and unwavering protagonist uh, and seconded by Cap, who was also you know, kind of wooden as characters go, to be honest. Yeah. Um, he didn't do much other than the right thing, you know. Um, Uncle Jim was a rabid dog who was only only tender to a dog. Um, and he spent most of the time being a badass bully 
uh, who is capable of tremendous violence and trying to always steer things toward that violence. Uh, I think mm. Tom, Tom Berenger just did an amazing job with that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's John C. and Rosanna. She was seduced and heartbroken, having been her father's favorite. Now she's dead to him, like to the point where he's screaming as he's like throwing her hope chest into the ground that he has mm-hmm. dug a pit in. And I think he burned it. I don't remember because the fire or no, because it was raining. Yeah. Um, and he's just, you know, broken up about the fact that she mm-hmm. lost her virginity to John C. Um, so. Yeah, uh, the relationship between Randall's inability to abide by her sleeping with John C and her grief over his repudiation was almost as painful as John C's inability to fit into his own family. Um, yeah. and and of course he followed his dick everywhere instead. Um, yeah, the the portrayal of John C as a complete himbo. <laughs> like just just a complete he yeah. slut is is yeah like you know at the same time like there's a real like he absolutely plays it so well that actor plays it so well that he is a yeah. fish out of water in his family he he yeah. doesn't abide by these these feuds he just doesn't get it he's got too much love in his dick to have that much hate in his heart <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> yeah so he it's has this the, wonderful a great monologue. way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> he has a wonderful monologue about that, actually. He yeah. talks about how despite being a Hatfield, he just couldn't bring himself to hate like the rest of his family could. And he spoke regularly to Rosanna about this, and then later to Nancy about yeah. moving moving specifically to Oregon. Um, the whole series shows his naivete, and it's just painful because he kind of highlights how ridiculous a feud is for humans who are just trying to eke out a living. Yeah. Now, a fun fact is that one of the three producers, a guy named Daryl Fetty, had dated a Caroline McCoy in the 1970s, and he became infatuated with her family's feud. Okay. Which is a little weird, to be honest. A little weird. But he does this to the point where he played Tolbert McCoy in the Jack Palance version. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. And when Kevin Costner said, yeah, we'll let you help produce, um, it actually helps him realize a dream. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Now, critically and commercially, this movie or this TV series was a huge success. It became the highest rated basic cable series ever. In fact, the only thing that trumped it uh, on cable was a 1993 edition of Larry King Live that featured Al Gore and Ross Perot debating NAFTA. Um. Wow. That drew more than 16 million viewers. I'm I'm amazed, number one, that, that this thing was was that the miniseries was in fact that big a deal. Mm-hmm. And that the only thing bigger than it was something that wonky. That was exactly my thought too. Like, what? wow. Like what considering how many wow. people had cable in '93. And you still got 16 million people viewing a debate between the vice president and a also ran for president a year after the presidency has been decided is just yeah. something. So yeah, we could have we could have an episode just on that. Yeah. Like I nominate you. I've put yeah. in enough suffering. 
So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you have. There's no, no argument for me there. So, so people ate this shit up. It, it, it. Leading into the summer of the Republican National Convention, uh, which was held late in August in Tampa, Florida, with the motto "A Better Future." Like really, mm-hmm. that was that was what you could come up with. Yeah, yeah, okay. In fact, the the theme of the uh, the the RNC was such that they were directly trying to marshal their voters and constituents to repudiate Barack Obama as president. They didn't say four years of a black man as president enough, but it was pretty close. Each day of the convention had its own theme. Monday was we can do better themed. Tuesday was we built it. Wednesdays was we can change it. And Thursdays was we believe in America. Yeah, okay. Now, all of this was while they were bolstering the SWAT and regular police in Tampa. The federal government gave a grant of $50 million to Tampa to ensure that there was no violence from the people that directed it, or or no violence from the people that would direct it toward the RNC. I'm going to say that again. The federal government gave a grant of $50 million to the city of Tampa, an American city, peopled largely by people, Americans who live in Tampa, Florida, to ensure that there was no violence from those people, be they Tampans or others who traveled to make trouble, directed at the RNC. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's some very, very selective, um, Hmm. Selective isn't the right word. I feel like there is a divergence of paradigm going on there. Go on. Well, even even back in 2012, it was pretty clear that the the biggest uh, threat to to Americans in terms of certainly any kind of domestic terrorism is is fascist healthcare. Oh. Ah, good one well played (laughs) but but like right-wing violence Mm -hmm. uh has has been hugely on the fucking rise yeah through that time and in fact you'll see it peak in 2014 yeah and and they're saying like well you know we got to protect the rnc right i don't think they're the ones that you need to worry about being the targets of, of violence here. Well, and then let's just dig in this a little more. They chose to go to Tampa. They could have chosen to go anywhere else, but they chose to go to Tampa, which is fine. They can have their convention wherever they want. But then as soon as you get there, you're like, oh, shit, we need federal money to protect us from the people in this town. It's like, what the fuck? What, what was going on in Tampa? Nothing that I could find. In fact, Mary Mulhern, the city council member of Tampa, stated that she was concerned that the money would be spent on security cameras and armored vehicles. She said if she was worried that the city would, quote, be militarized, end quote. She suggested, get this, 
a city council member suggested that some of the money should be used on a homeless shelter. Could you imagine? What the fuck? Yeah, I don't know that she got reelected. I um, did probably not in yeah. Tampa, goddamn Florida. And it turns out that the city of Tampa instituted a six-day ban on panhandling. Just Okay, you've been given, it was $50 million, you yes. said. Yes. You've you've been given fifty million dollars by the feds for security. Okay, we'll we'll walk past that. All right, fine. And and well, you can't order... walk past that without a without a placard and a lanyard, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you you better goddamn have your lanyard. Mm. Um, but... it's it's this generation's. <laughs> Do you have a flag? Do you have a flag? Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. lanyard. <laughs> no lanyard. No rights. Yeah. No rights. Um, but like your response, you've you've been given fifty million big ones. Mm-hmm. Fifty. I'm you still sound like Navin R. Johnson. Fifty thousand big ones. Yeah. yeah. You've you've been you've been given this amazingly large amount of money. An obscenely large sum of money. Yes, this this just ridiculous obnoxious amount of money for security. Yes. And you're going to institute a 3-day ban on 6-day. Six 6-day, six sorry. Yeah. Cuz for the duration That's, of the RNC. Yeah, right. 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 As long as as long as these uh corporate white men mm-hmm. are here no panhandling. Right. Because like, Obama has impoverished America so much that we can't even stand to look at these people. I'm here for the common fuck. man. Get the fuck away from me, you ugly, dirty peasant. Yeah, I'm here for the common man. Fuck off, peasant. That right, that right there. Right there. Yeah. That's Lauren goddamn Boebert right now. Uh-huh. That's that's the entire GOP today. Oh and God, the, and the only... And the only difference, the only difference is they're not even trying to put a mask on it now. Right. Well, because masks are for pussies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm here for the common man. Fuck off, peasant. Like, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. It, yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm still I'm still wrestling, though, with. <laughs> yes, you are. It was so many things, really. But where I, I I really want to know what the decision tree was there, like 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 administratively, like how did that go up the chain, and who made the decision that no no we're going to give the fifty million to them because we got to protect the RNC because you know God knows they're in Tampa, Florida, right? Like okay, if the RNC, you mean the place decided, they chose to be. Yeah, the place they chose to be. But like if if for some bizarre reason, if if we were in bizarro world mm-hmm. and the RNC decided that they were going to hold their convention in the Castro district of San Francisco. Sure. Then okay, maybe, maybe you might need to worry about some people showing up to be disruptive and 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 cause trouble. They wouldn't be violent. Right. 
Like, that's not a thing you need to there worry about. There might be milkshakes thrown and pies thrown. There is yes. a history of queer folk pieing yeah. people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Food, but, food being weaponized there. Yeah. But it's like, not like they're protesters in Chicago. Yeah. And, and it's not like. Which, by the way, was the DNC. Yes. What the, was the DNC? And it's not fair. like it, it isn't like, you know, the Democrats deciding that they're going to go to Kerrville, Macon. Texas. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Kerrville, Texas, which notably had a storefront for the KKK. Just going to say me it was a laundry. <laughs> Get your whites whiter. Like I, I, I wish it was anything <laughs> that clever. No, um, no, um, friend of the yeah. yeah. Any anyway, I I had the opportunity to visit Kerrville a number of years ago, and yeah. So if 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 like the Democratic Party decided no, we're we're gonna we're gonna hold our our uh, convention here, <laughs> then okay. Now you're going to need to worry about some people showing up to kill people. Right. Like you are legitimately going to need to worry yes. about the physical safety of delegates to that convention. You would have had to worry about that back when I visited Kerrville in 97. You would need to worry about it a whole lot more now. Um, yeah. But it boggles my mind that somebody thought the Republican National Convention would need protection in the Bible Belt. Well, it's not I quite mean, the Bible Belt. I mean, it's it's, it's close. Tampa, Florida. So yeah, okay, it's midway down the shaft. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and by all accounts, from people I know who've been there, it's, it's near the taint. Um, yeah, I mean, it's but, hot. It's wet. It's wrinkled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I was about to say not that wrinkled. It's Florida. Everything's flat. But um, no, but the amount of old people that live there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Very scrutal. Like, like of all the places where the Republicans would need to worry about that shit. Mm -hmm. Like, really? Right. And again, Tampa, goddamn Florida. Y'all chose it yeah. a month ago or a year ago. You know, yeah. like this was not news to them. And so for them to think that there is a, and it's, this is 2012. This is not 2020 where there was the ginned up fear of an organization so dastardly and at the same time weak as to exist, uh, but not exist called Antifa. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that know? word hadn't even like, unless you were part of a specific subset of the music scene, you didn't even know who Antifa uh, unless were. you were out there getting stabbed by Nazis when yeah. you were telling them they weren't welcome here. You did not know that term. Yeah. So, yeah, but but that's, and she said, hey, can we get, you know, can we get some of that money used for the homeless shelter or or maybe not do this ban on panhandling? Um, yeah. The assistant chief of police, Mark Hamlin, told her that such an allocation was doubtful, uh, which I love that the assistant chief of police is telling the city council member that the federal monies coming in would not be going to anything that uh, the city council member was suggesting. So uh, the money ended up being used to deputize more police, expanding surveillance technology throughout the city and buying a new armored SWAT vehicle. Uh, even the Heritage Foundation 
even <laughs> the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> yeah. Took issue with the police state atmosphere in Tampa that week. When when the Heritage Foundation thinks you're being a little too fashy, you've right. you fucked up. Like, right. wow. Yeah. Uh, so additionally, Newt Gingrich, after uh, releasing his delegates a week prior, right, to go and vote for uh, Mitt Romney, set up something called Newt U, uh, which was a series of public policy workshops for delegates. Um, the aim was to deepen the message of the convention's platform and give them talking points and the backup that they would need to make their case forcefully. Gingrich used the day's themes in greater detail and gave delegates an opportunity to dive deeper into those issues that were touched by the themes. Each class was open to credentialed convention media, as well as activists and party officials at the convention. Uh, they were actually held at different campuses every day, forcing delegates to move around and to attend more. Uh, and also allowing one-timers to come and participate in one that was near them in the Tampa area. So from an organizational strand standpoint, it was pretty cool uh, in terms of, oh, fuck, what he uh, did. Well, content. yeah, um, we can do better day uh, on its face could simply be that Obama has been in charge for four years and we'd like a shot. Okay, cool. But also the dog whistles, right? Uh, we white folks can do better than that uppity black guy uh, who dared to take over our white house by giving the majority to vote for him. So that was day one. Mm. Uh, the next day we built it. Oh my God. Uh, I can't call this a dog whistle. It's a fucking foghorn. Um, it's a dig at anybody who did labor in this country whom they'd identify as un-American. So, Latine. Mm. It's a dig at Obama's, quote, you didn't build that uh, speech in Roanoke, Virginia, in July of 2012. Remember, he pointed out that everybody helps everybody in this country, and that's one of our strengths, and that your individual excellence was only possible because everyone else who came before you laid down the sweat to make the infrastructure possible that allowed you to accomplish your, your excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, of course that pissed off everyone who was born on third, who thought they'd hit a triple. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite phrases about those people. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's got uh, also um, other layers because, it's mostly a white convention of people who don't want to credit black people for the labor that they historically put into building this country and were forced literally. To. Yes. Literally. Yes. There are fingerprints on bricks all yes. over Washington, DC. They mm -hmm. literally built it. Oh, and in Florida. Yeah. You want to talk about yeah. St. Augustine for a second? Yeah. <laughs> like, mm. I really don't want to. Yeah. Me like, either. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's it's that I, kind of shit. Like I'm running out of beer as it is. I, I don't <laughs> have enough to drink. But we built it is is just wow, right? Um, add another layer to that. We built it conveys a sense of ownership and propriety. This is mm. ours. We built it, which, oh, yeah. like in other words, well, what are you doing I mean, with that White House? We built that. Yeah, it's it's. And I'm sure because this is this is Newt, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and we know him of old. Well, this is also um, the full-on RNC. Each day was oh, decided yeah. by the RNC. He was just capitalizing on it by having campuses give them talking points on each part. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, but I'm, I'm saying, you know, because because he's he's the one organizing this particular part of this whole thing. Yeah, this is the new U I'm, stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that the new U like wrapped itself up in colonial imagery and the writing of the constitution and the declaration of independence and all of that founder crap, because that's, that is virtue signaling and Mm -hmm. it's a really convenient mechanism for being a complete white supremacist shithead. Yeah. It's and trying to hide behind virtue. Well, so uh, it's it's this idea that I have uh, or this concept that I have. I, I don't have a name for it. I, I haven't been able to steal that from anybody yet. Yeah. But um, I, I look forward to it. But how can you sound racist to the right people and still not sound racist when you want to Schrodinger it? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, what yeah. I'm talking about is dog whistles. But like, at yeah. the same time, like you want racists to realize that you're being racist at the same time you've got the deniability of like we built it this is america any american can build it when really everybody who's racist knows when you say american you mean white christian yeah so yeah and then there's the next day which was we can change it uh now obviously uh the, the thing that comes to my mind immediately is is the laws that protect queer folk uh, people of the global majority in America and women, um, again, for the intellectually lazy and dishonest, those who are willing to choose to believe in the kayfabe, it's optimism. Like, we yeah. can change this country, to you know, but not together. Notice it does use we, but it doesn't use the word together because that sounds well, like no, communism. Socialism. Like, yeah. What the hell? Or or even worse, reaching across the aisle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and we can change it. We can kick mm-hmm. that guy. Yes. Out. That interloper. Yeah. That thief in the night. Yeah. And I and I really I really need because I mean you've already hit on this, but I mm-hmm. I need to reiterate for anybody who did not grow up to the right of Chinggis Khan, like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, there really genuinely was, and I'm sure remains mm-hmm. a sense of entitlement to the executive branch of the government in this country amongst Republicans. Yeah. Why? I don't fucking know. I well, blame the math Reagan. Of it, actually. Yeah. I mean, if you really look from 1968 through 2020, there have only been one jimmy carter two bill clinton and three uh barack obama three presidents from 68 to 20 and you know yeah and then yeah you know so and they all had the audacity to get a majority vote like who the fuck does that well come on nobody since yeah the first bush yeah Um, so (laughs) so you know I, I guess but what yeah I'm, that entitlement yeah, the, of this the, is ours this this sense yeah. of like how dare you mm-hmm. really is a a thing yeah but like what it's you it's could... not just 
I, I, you know, it, for, for those of you who are listening outside of the United States or those of you who, you know, come from different backgrounds, honestly, thank you, this Austria, is, this is yes, for you. Thank you. Yeah. Especially um, this, those of you living in fucking. Don't think I fucking, don't see you. Fucking thank you. Yeah. Um, but this, this is not just, uh, you know, Damien pointing this idea out that there nope. is this, this sense of ownership or entitlement. No, no. I can speak from personal experience that this is an emotional thing mm -hmm. um, that I am now. Like I, I want to go back to 18 year old me and smack him hard repeatedly mm. across the face. Like, no, you dipshit. No. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. So for people willing to believe in that kayfabe, um, this is optimism. We can change it, right? Uh, it's honestly, it's the rights version of hope and change. So if you say, you know, we can change, it sounds racist. It's like, oh, really? So what was hope and change then? Hmm. And it's that, you know, that very lazy gotcha kind of, kind oh, of yeah. shit. But, yeah. but the we... And we can change it is exclusionary despite its inclusive connotations. We can change it once we get to power mm -hmm. and given their platform the right position. People. Yeah. And the given right their platform people. position on expanding the 14th Amendment to apply to the unborn, given their platform position of bastardizing the idea of human rights to apply to fetuses in order to remove human rights from women. And given their platform uh, position of applying a guest worker program's infrastructure, primarily at seeking out and locking up the, quote, bad ones, it's not it's not inclusive or particularly honest. Well, no. And by the way, those were their platform positions in 2012. Oh, yeah. No, they've gotten worse yeah. since. And then we come to we believe in America. That's the final day. That's the final thing. We believe in America is a shout out to the religious right highlighting their faith in white nationalist Jesus, as opposed to the straw men that they've made liberal elites out to be. We believe, not them, we believe, like Ronald Reagan before us, not that Jimmy Carter poser who wishes he was a good Christian like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> See, even though I know mm -hmm. you're being drippingly sarcastic, like, oh, as, as, as like the venom, the venom coming off of your fangs mm -hmm. is, is visible across the internet to me right now. Mm -hmm. Even, even knowing that hearing you say that makes me want to punch, punch you. Yeah. Because really, you're the ones that, like, how yeah. very fucking dare you? Yeah. How you get, you get Mr. Carter's name out of your goddamn mouth right <laughs> now. Right. Like as, as someone who works very hard to be a genuine follower of Jesus mm -hmm. of Nazareth, like you, you stop talking about St. Jimmy that way or so help <laughs> me God. Like the man isn't even dead yet. I'm just telling you. Like, yeah. Have some more respect for Jim, James Carter. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we and, believe, right? Uh, we believe in America, whereas Obama wasn't even born here. And and again, the rage. Yeah, but that's what's happening in 2012. 
The Drudge Report had rejected the long form of Obama's birth certificate just a year and a half prior in April of 2011. The White House even had his birth certificate posted to its website that year. This has never happened to a president in the past. Uh, And two months after this convention, Donald Trump himself, one of the main birther barkers, offered to donate $5 million to the charity of Obama's choice in return for the publication of Obama's college and college transfer transcripts and his passport applications before October 31st of 2012. All this while at the same time, a woman named Orly Tatis, a professional lawsuit bringer and dentist, was filing lawsuits to challenge Obama in primaries and general elections in New Hampshire, Georgia, Alabama, Indiana, Mississippi, and Kansas. All of these because she and others like her truly believe in America, not like those others who don't. So that was the final day. I'm not supposed to carry hatred in my heart. I but I fucking hate I fucking hate these people. Yeah. Orly Tatis can uh, Yeah. He's allegedly uh, a giant piece of shit. Um <laughs> Sue happy as she is, she might actually hunt down this podcast. So now all that I have talked about has happened after Hatfields and McCoys came out on cable. This is true. Right, right, yes. But I think it's important to see what was happening before, during, and a bit after. Because there was a tremendous amount of clannishness going on. Uh, There was a huge amount of us over here are the only good ones and them over there are always causing trouble. Because at its core, that's what the thesis statement of this miniseries was. Right or wrong, you're going to stay loyal to ourselves. We're going to keep ourselves safe from those who aren't like us. And if you look at the demographic breakdown of who watches the History Channel historically, you'll see some overlap with who was at that convention and who was voting with Mitt Romney. A full 50% of the History Channel's viewing audience is 55 and older, and only 24% is college graduated, a fact I found stunning. 71% own their own homes, must be nice, Um, and 60% (laughs) are men. Yeah, all right. Now let's compare that. that Compare that to the 2012 election. A uh, majority of the men voted for Romney uh, yeah. over Obama. 50, 52% men voted for Romney, 45% for Obama. A majority of white people voted for Romney. 59% Romney, 39% Obama. A majority of 45 to 64-year-olds voted for Romney, 52 to 47. A majority of the 65-plus voters voted for Romney, 56 to 42, or 56 to 44. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed amongst that age group. It was that close, frankly. I was stunned that that number was lower than white people. Yeah. Okay. Because demographically, there's fewer people 65 and older who are not white. That's true. Because of how we made sure that healthcare doesn't get how, how we apportion healthcare in this country. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a plurality of the some college voters voted for Obama, 49 to 48. Very, very close. A majority of college grads voted for Romney, 51 to 47. Oh? College really? grads include people way older than you and me. That was the That's, other thing all right, okay, good point. Yeah, all right, makes A sense. majority of conservatives voted for Romney, 
82 to 17. Yeah, big shock. Yeah, but wow, what a spread. Yeah. And anybody making over 50,000, a majority of them voted for Romney, 52 to 46. And again, I'm a little impressed that it was as close as it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, what with like taking all of all of the rest of the identity mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. and and everything out of it strictly based on you know boring economic tax shit right i would i would expect you know more of those folks to have been voting republican yeah. but all right now i will say yeah. this i do need to give mitt romney credit for one of the things he said to obama in the debates that Russia was our biggest uh, danger. Yeah. Obama whiffed hard on that one. Made fun of him. Got a lot of points for making fun of him. Romney looked like a crackpot. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah, that was was a failure of imagination on the part of a whole lot of policy wonks at the time. Now, in prior iterations, the story of the Hatfield-McCoy feud was something to base a narrative on a story that is the familiar basis for contemporary or fairly recent labor history, but to ultimately go your own way with it, right? Like our hospitality and Rosanna McCoy. This is the background story, and now off we go, right? Or since it wasn't anyone's intellectual property, it was a way to fill time on a failing time slot like the Hatfields and McCoy's movie. (laughs) Um, Just lazy. Yeah. Just just lazy. Straight up. We need to to, uh, make sure we file this, you know? Yeah. Um, or in short form, it was grist for the look at these rubes, depending on the cultural desire to see people in that region of the U.S. as backward and uneducated and as punchlines unto themselves. Yeah. Um, it was cultural shorthand for I'm better than them. Right. Right. But now in 2012, it's absolutely making visceral. And I mean that in all the ways, the deepened divisions that were showing no signs of slowing. And it was drawing on that cultural subliminal trauma. Also, Duck Dynasty had just come out uh, in case you want to look at these these rubes still, right? Mm. In, in case you wanted to make make this culture a harmless thing, probably an answer to the success of Swamp People, uh, which itself was a History Channel thing. A t- reality TV show on History Channel. Yeah. Now, in addition to all of this clannishness, we cannot ignore the inherent violence of this particular iteration as well. There's all sorts of men doing bad things to other men. Uh, this violence and at one point uh, cow whipping uh, uh, Jenna Malone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, this violence, which is what makes the story what it is, is a deeply masculinized violence. And it's coming out at a time when conservative Americans and Republicans because those are different groups. Um, They are deeply resentful and distrusting of the government, as well as a time when boomers are becoming less and less centered in the American story. 16% of Republicans or Republican-leaning Americans said that they had faith in the government in October of 2012. And that was up six points from the prior year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I'm not talking fringe rightists. I mean straight up moderates through conservatives. And by the way, if we're only looking at white folks, that number actually drops to 8% in October of 2011, and it holds steady at 16% of 2012. Wow. And, And since 2002, the percentage of Americans who had confidence that their children would enjoy a better life than they would 
was dropping steadily, crossing the 50% 50 threshold about a year after the series came out. Wow. Yeah, which is really wild when you stop to think that Barack Obama, a man whose father would have been regularly refused at restaurants in certain states, was able to become president. His opponent in 2012 talked about how he himself was the son of a man who sold paint out of his trunk in the same state that he'd become governor. Okay, that's Mitt Romney's dad. Yeah. Now, despite that parallel testimony of upward opportunity, so you've got one whose father would have been refused seats and now he's the president, and another whose father sold paint out of a car and then became governor of it, you have a lot of upward mobility in both stories. Um, most Americans and a vast majority of white, middle-aged, middle-class male Americans were increasingly frustrated by the lack of perceived power over their own destiny. It's like we found the worst way to do a good thing. Michael Dimcock, or no, not Dimcock. What a great name that would have been. <laughs> that, Michael, yeah. Michael Dimock of Pew said in 2012, quote, there are people struggling, and what you're seeing, especially right now, are people who feel like they played the game the right way, like they did what they were supposed to do, and the rules they thought they could play by and be okay have changed on them somehow. Now, my own commentary is that white people were really upset that they were finally being treated like somebody who wasn't white. They didn't mm. know that they were upset about that until Donald Trump let them be okay with feeling that way. But there was so much aggrievement because of the housing market collapse, because of the endless wars, because the banks got bailed out, because uh, everybody else, you know, everybody lost their house except for the banks who caused them to lose their houses. And only one person ever was arrested for it. Um, yeah. You have all that aggrievement. Um, and really what's happening is white people are being brought to a level that they thought didn't exist unless you had done something wrong. They believed it was meritocracy that was keeping them on top, not sheer dumb fucking luck, not generational yeah. wealth, even though you grew up poor. <clears throat> yeah. Because your generational wealth was not having generational poverty. Yeah. So a TV show about a poorer family feuding with a richer family, but with the poorer family coming out on the less sympathetic side of the narrative seems just about a perfect fit for these demographics. A good way to get eyes on your product is to play to their frustrations and their disgust. They're frustrated that they're closer to the position of the McCoys. Tradition isn't working for them. Faith in God doesn't work for them. And they're getting screwed by Richard folks, uh, richer folks who are others. Those folks over there across the river. And they secretly wish for the ability to disdain such folks like the Hatfields do. And since nobody around is powerful enough to help folks get the recompense they deserve, you got to take matters into your own hand. Now, at that same time, <sighs> Brock Lesnar returned and was a monster beating the shit out of John Cena repeatedly. That's the power. Daniel Bryan turned heel and began shouting no instead of yes. That's the frustration. Mm -hmm. And the Shield came out and beat up whomever they wanted and the shield was made up of three guys, so they would always outnumber the guy they beat the shit out of, and they brought what they deemed justice to the WWE. So there's your popular appeal. All in the same year that the Hatfields and the McCoys came out. Okay. 
now I'm, 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 yeah. I'm surprised that it took this long for that angle to show up. Well, I had to wait till we got to 2012. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, I mean, mentioned kayfabe yeah. a couple times during the RNC. that's well, yeah, that's true, but yeah, yeah. because right. I, honestly, I think I kind of want to take a look at kayfabe as a concept when it comes to national conventions. <laughs> I might have to get my friend who was a press agent at one of the national conventions to come on and talk to us about it. Oh, that'd be, yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. So in May of 24, oh, you were going to say something? I'm sorry. No, 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 oh. go ahead. In May of 2014, the littlest pet shop came out. Okay. Okay. Um, and in, in November of 2015, uh, and, and it was basically a, a cartoon, a littlest pet shop. It, it, it was another cartoon talked about the Hatfields and McCoys. So we're okay. moving past the, the, the mini series. Okay. okay. Cause I'm going to cover them all. And in t- November of 2015, my little pony did an episode called the hoot foot hoot fields and McColts. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. yeah. Fluttershy and twilight sparkle, uh, amended fences between the two feuding families. And by showing them that the power of friendship is hella better than winning a longstanding argument. Uh, they've, they've stopped a feud now of course it still has the the beat parts of uh broken down homes out in the woods and there's one good line in that episode that i dug because i watched that too um Mm -hmm. forgiveness is an investment to happiness and i like that okay otherwise i do like that it's noted by a lot of brony fans um you remember bronies I do. It's it's noted by a lot of bronies uh, that it is actually a particularly lazy episode drawing on old tropes. Um, and given the prior interest in the Hatfield McCoy series, it actually makes sense that a cartoon would draw on that story just a few years later. Um, two other cartoons came out from 2015 to 2019 dealing in Hatfield McCoy lore, but they literally did nothing different from what came before. Uh, like I said, uh, Littlest Pet Shop had an episode called Feud for Thought. And Ben 10, when it rebooted, had an episode called Them's Fighting Words. They're really unremarkable. They don't really add to or contradict any of the points that I've made. So I'm just going to blow past them. Uh, okay. Matter of fact, there's not that much more as far as Hatfields and McCoys go. In general, uh, there's a uh, direct-to-TV DVD movie called Hatfields and McCoys Bad Blood. That was the trailer that I showed you a few weeks back. With Christian yeah. Slater playing a governor who is trying to stop the families from feuding, um, and and you know, and here's the thing: like showing that story from a point of view of like anybody in authority who is trying to stop the bloodshed could be a good film. Could be a really great film. Yeah, giving us a new take on the whole story. Right. But oh my god, that looked so awful. Yeah. It was so awful, and like, and Slater, I think what it was Slater looked 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 oh, so unhealthy. Boring. Yeah, like I think what it was was there was a production company that you know basically put some money into getting some stars in it, wrote a real shitty script, and was like, "How many people will buy this one off of Amazon by accident?" <laughs> I legit think that's what happened. <laughs> Uh, that's depressing. I think, yeah, because if you look at when it came out, it was around the same time as the DVD for the History Channel one came out, and it just man, people, that's yeah, bad. Yeah, um, I almost couldn't finish the trailer. I didn't even try with the fucking movie. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I you sent it to me, and I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I had to had to take a look at this thing, yeah. and and I didn't even have the sound on, right? And and I couldn't get through the trailer. It was right. just like, it's like, it's a oh minute God. four seconds, and I got Later. to like forty seconds, going fuck. <laughs> I had the same feeling watching this trailer as I did getting through the second hour of King Kong when I watched it when my brother came back from Iraq. And I turned to him. I'm like, how goddamn long is this movie? And he just turns to me. He's like, it's Peter Jackson. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, uh, NBC developed a uh, pilot that seemed to be a modern retelling of the story. Starring Rebecca De Mornay as the evident matriarch of the modern Hatfield family, and it was supposed to focus on the rigid and unyielding patriarchy stemming from long-term and outdated opinions of each other passed down to each side. It never aired. Um, Thank God. And finally, in September of 2019, awful. yeah, it was dog shit. I'm sure. Uh, again, it was a pilot that never aired. Like that. Yeah. That should okay. tell you plenty. Tells you plenty. So finally, we get to September of 2019. American Experience put out a documentary called The Feud. Uh, the opening graphic for the trailer was the river splitting two hills, just as we've seen in the cartoons. But for the documentary, it starts literally starts with the Bugs Bunny opening fanfare with an historian analyzing the cartoon for a little bit. And he says at the outset that The Feud, quote, created the stereotype of the hillbilly in the American consciousness. Oh. And, yeah. And they really focus on the use of the media as a tool of propaganda of the industrialized interest to to justify their exploitation and their planned harm of rural America. And I do mean planned harm. Um, this was produced pre-pandemic. And there okay. was absolutely a great amount of effort put toward explaining the Trump populism in the context of city versus rural values as being his wedge issue. And I can re recall multiple podcasts in the prior year that spoke specifically to that very divide between uh, rural and city. Um, and they explained it as something that elite liberals failed to get uh, and that the bubbles that they were living in were allowing them to both disdain and ignore rural America and their aggrievements. I specifically remember one podcast talking about a factory town that no longer had the factory and what that did to the people living there psychologically and why it turned that place so red. And if you remember, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy came out in June of 2016. Mm -hmm. By June of 2017, it was a New York Times bestseller because people were looking for a way to explain Trump's victory. Rod Dreher, an American expat living in Hungary, so be careful, because no. why would you choose there? Well, he praises Viktor Orban, so we have our answer. Uh, <laughs> because... yeah. Orban made Hungary an example of what a vigorous conservative government can do if it's serious about stemming this horrible global tide of wokeness, end quote. Oh, God. And he encouraged Christian Ugh. Americans to start segregating after the Obergfell decision and that Vance's book, quote, draws conclusions that may be hard for some people to take. But Vance has earned the right to make those judgments. This was his life. He speaks with authority that has never that he has that has been extremely hard won. Um, so that's mm, praise mm, of the book from okay. a guy yeah. who thinks Victor Orban is is really good. Is is peachy keen. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, historian Bob Hutton 
an actual historian, said that the book ignored existing scholarship on poverty in Appalachia, and it was pinned to eugenics as an underlying assumption and relied on circular logic. He called J.D. Vance's book a work of self-congratulation. Now, yeah. he's an historian. He's also right about this, and I don't think that mattered. No. Yeah. Because, of course, it did. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the 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 story that J.D. Vance is telling mm-hmm. is replete with survivorship bias. Also that. Like on top of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the what what he. There's a trap when we're teaching our students about primary versus secondary sources. There is this trap that's easy to fall into mm-hmm. of if it's a primary source, it's automatically a better source than a secondary one. Right. And J.D. Vance is obviously a primary source here. But the thing is, Mm -hmm. if you only relied on eyewitness accounts of what the Battle of the Somme was like, you'd never have any understanding of what the fuck actually happened in the Battle of the Somme. That's true. There's a lot of like, I looked left and looked right and was surprised that I was still standing. So Yeah. And Yeah. yeah, you know. Um, and, and you need to have a wider view. Mm-hmm. You need to look to longer term analysis or for that matter, uh, different, you know, uh, uh, historical context like JD Vance, nothing against his life story. Right. You know, and That's what he experienced, Yeah, you know, what he experienced, but there are other forces at work Mm -hmm. that as one individual living one lifetime, he's not in a position to see. Right. You know, and well, and he didn't do the work like, yeah, the the historian pointed (laughs) out like, okay, dude, the data is out there. Like you could find that shit and you could use that shit to make a powerful point and to, to challenge your own assumptions and actually write a book worth a fuck. But Instead, it's a book that like people in the rural areas are like, ah, see, this guy gets me. And that liberals living in cities also loved because it seemed to line up with, and Dreher explains this. He says it, it seemed to line up with the criticisms that uh, mm-hmm. uh, of it by trained experts in the field that Vance wrote a memoir on. Uh, essentially, liberals liked it because it plucked the way or plucked at the way that they wanted to see themselves. They like liberals love thinking that there is a colorblind meritocracy. They okay, love yeah. they love that Obama was a post racial president. Yeah, that's what good liberals love. Um, they think everybody deserves to get the same chance, and therefore they do. And and Vance's book kind of pushes that and allows liberals to be like, yeah, see, and and he made it, and and he he rose up from. It feels like the same way that Lenin felt about Stalin. Like, look at this peasant. He is the guy we're fighting for. Look at how high he's risen. <laughs> it's that same kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Look, look how the, how that went for literally everybody. Well, yeah, but <laughs> I would point out I'm, that I'm JD Vance saying, is a very powerful figure now you, in Jenny, the Senate. Uh huh. So, I, you, yeah, 
So Vance's doesn't book, repeat, but it rhymes. Yup. Vance's book largely pointed out how people in Appalachia did not get the fair chance that everyone else thinks that they got instead of realizing that, you know, instead of people realizing like, oh, I got an advantage chance because other people got a dis- disadvantage chance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not fair. Uh, that's not even equal. But people are like, see, it's a meritocracy because look how well I did. Um, and Vance is like, yo, you left plenty of white people behind. And so liberals are like, oh, no, there are people that did not get the fairness that we thought they were getting. <sighs> I understand poverty now. <laughs> um, and it lets them think that they're the real liberals since they grew up poorer than East Coast elite liberals, too. OK, yeah. So the book was wildly popular explaining why Trump won. Right. Especially in 2017. Vance wrote in 2016 that, quote, what unites Trump's voters is a sense of alienation from America's wealthy and powerful. And that's hella true. Yes, it's but it's not complete. There. Right. Exactly <laughs> that. So it's, it's what you do from there that, that really, really helps paint the, the picture. So essentially, white working class poor folk who felt betrayed by Bush and ignored by Obama found an avatar for their frustrations and their impotent rage in Donald Trump. And in an interview with USA Today, J.D. Vance plainly stated that what so many were saying in 2016, he said, quote, I love the way Trump criticizes party elites, but really dislike the candidate himself. I'm definitely not supporting Trump, though I probably won't vote for Hillary either. She just seems like she doesn't care about the people I grew up around, end quote. And then a lot of them went into the voting booth and voted for Donald Trump anyway, or they stayed home in protest. And this aped the solutions that Devil Ants Hatfield and Randall McCoy reluctantly came to in the 2012 miniseries. Grim, gruff, can't trust nobody but my own gun and my own, and my own self. That mentality made the series so attractive to so many of our age and older because of that sense of alienation. The law will not help us. Even the law-abiding Wall Hatfield broke the Mm -hmm. law the second that he saw that the law wasn't working. Devil Ants said something about the law uh, not working, that he would take care of it himself. Uh, Rannell said that the God was a better law and that the laws of men would be inferior. And then when that all failed, he pointed out the failures of the law. Um, and Vance himself went from speaking against Trump to openly embracing Trump and his endorsement uh, in a bid for Senate. And he won the Senate race in 2022 by a full 6% against Tim Ryan. And he won the Republican primary when state Senator Mike Dolan announced Trump's claim of uh, election fraud in 2020. Or denounced, sorry. Yeah. So Dolan said, like, that's that's not what happened and jd vance primaried him um so the exploitation of that region and its people whether it's industrial propagandistic or just for the sake of entertainment remains a constant and dependable uh thing specifically because all three are really just shades of capitalism which profited mightily off of the feud that captured the imagination of the country during times of upheaval or times of challenge to the status quo. And it made us, the American people who don't live there, chuckle at the absurdity of all of it in the times of overall consensus. 
So when we did come back together, we could just chuckle together about them. Both of these things were in service of a shittier and more exploited, more exploitative ideology. Yeah, I I can't I can't find anything to to build on that with. That's that's <laughs> you've you've summed it up very succinctly there. Um, Six episodes later. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when you <laughs> tie it all for up, Damien. Yeah. yeah, you know, you tie it all up in a bow like that. That's True. kind of what I mean. Yeah. Um, you you are you are as always very methodical about you know laying out all the proofs, but then you you tie it together very well. Thank you. Um, yeah, I I think the the weird level of again cartoonification of rural white folks yes. in most of these not all but most of these mm -hmm. renditions of the story is worth paying attention to yeah i think for for those of us of a you know coastal elite kind of bent it's worth being aware of mm -hmm. and and doing some self-examination of our own bias you know now and, that you say that it occurs yeah. to me that this is the second time that i've brought up stop making fun of people that we think are dumb yeah you know uh yeah when i did idiocracy yeah yeah so, yeah Anyway, yeah, you know, yeah. And and the other thing is, um, you know, in the wake of of Donald Trump taking the White House, mm -hmm. you know, everywhere taking all the White House over. Yeah, well, fuck that. <laughs> he didn't win the popular vote. Fuck that. Taking it back. Yeah. But but in in the aftermath of him winning the Electoral College and. Mm -hmm and taking up residence in the white house there was all of this uh on on the center toward left uh there was all this hang hand wringing about you know how did this happen what what were the mistakes we made and then from the right i really distinctly remember an acquaintance of mine who was at one time a friend getting very preachy about, well, you know, uh, maybe now you'll learn that you shouldn't spend so much time up on your high horse, uh, you know, uh, uh, disregarding or talking down to people. And I'm like, you know what? You're not one of the rural white people they're all talking about. You live in a suburb outside of a major metropolitan area. Right in the second largest state in the country. Fuck you. <laughs> no. I, you know, no. I, I've had family members who are like, you're just as bad as, you know, they have a friend of theirs who's very rightist. And I used to go toe to toe with them, like at family functions. Yeah. And I, yeah. I remember straight up just standing up to him like, dude, quit trying to lecture me on shit. You only have a passing understanding of you want to debate me, bring facts until then shut the fuck up and sit down. And he's a guy who was a generation older than me. He was, you know, a, f a okay. friend of a parent figure. And I remember okay. that parent figure looking at me going like, nice job. 
because you know i've always gone along to get along with family and stuff like that yeah. No point in trying yeah yeah and i just had enough i had that same family member uh send me an email about like you know why hillary's gonna lose and it was it was just a joke but it was because you can't run with a cane because kane was the guy uh the the vp and i was like oh it's not really yeah. a joke and also like this is a pretty dire fucking thing here that you're joking about and yeah. I got I got a message back saying like you know ever since you started being a comic you're like this arbiter of what's funny and what isn't it's a really bad look and it's really shitty of you and I was like fair point fair point okay no problem okay I can get right. up my own ass about things absolutely and then he says you know you're <laughs> you're becoming like the leftist version of that family friend and I was like yeah no I'm not gonna accept your both sidesism there but you know calling yeah. me calling me out <laughs> no. for arrogance when it comes to what true comedy is. Okay, fair. Cool. Uh maybe I yeah. I've been smelling my own farts when it comes to like, <laughs> you know, my particular taste. But bullshit yeah. on the other part. And yeah, no. That combined with one other incident that happened, uh I've pretty much lost contact with, you know, I, I send a text on birthdays. That's about it. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it it's a damn shame, but it's like Yeah. Trump winning was a fucking indictment. It wasn't proof that you were right. It was proof that we're all fucked. Yeah. It's proof that you, yeah. that wrong won. That's what it is, you know? And it's yeah. it's not a, oh, you shouldn't make fun of the rurals. I, I agree you shouldn't make fun of the rurals. You shouldn't call them the rurals. But, yeah. like, there's this layer of, like, and see what happens. It's like, that's <clears throat> like saying no. see what happens when you know, you scream for help and the mugger attacks you and stabs you. It's like, shouldn't have called for help then, huh? It's like that kind of shit. I'm like, no, that's. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where, where I was, where I was going to go with this next is like genuinely no kidding. Trumpism is a shitty political philosophy. Yeah. And it's based in cruelty. It is based in making the right people suffer like yep. that's we've not, talked about that before during the episode. we have we have yeah. and it's not it's not a philosophy for serious people nope it's not a philosophy for anybody with any any modicum of uh empathy or or fellow feeling for your human for your fellow humans it's, it's not a philosophy that's dependent upon democracy that's no, really what it's it not. Is. It's anti-democratic. It's, it is. It it literally, I mean, didn't get into power through democracy, got into power through, and and then the clarion call became, this is not, you know, like when they were during 2020, it's like, it's not a democracy, it's a republic. And it's like, you don't know what those words mean. Um, Number one. Yeah. Number number two, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a problem when when the democratic process doesn't actually bear out the winner. Like, Simple arithmetic yeah. should be the thing that guides it. And it's not. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's yeah, there's this this weird thing though, like, and again, people disdain rural rural folk. Yeah. And that's not okay either. And it's it's not it's not, you know, a lot of people were trying to explain what happened. I remember the next day in November of twenty sixteen what happened you know and and i remember mm -hmm. you know a lot of people like, well it was this it was this i was like no this was a failure on on the side of the democrats they thought it was a walk-on mm -hmm. it wasn't a walk-on 
you've had a party that has been abandoning organized labor since 1970 in small part or in large part and only doing lip service to them. And eventually yeah. they're going to stop showing up for you. And, and that wasn't a see what happens so much as, you know, the policies where you ignore people's aggrievements and you ignore the things and you dismantle the things that empower uh, the the majority of the workers. You, you yeah. allow that and you are cutting your own throat politically because you don't have the ability to rally people uh, around a cause of hatred. That's the other side. Yeah. Like. I had a friend yeah. who described it as uh, the 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 right are dogs. They need a leader who, on occasion, will beat the shit out of one of the dogs and keep the pack in order. And the left are cats, and yeah. you got to get a <laughs> bunch of different kinds of food out if you want to keep those cats around. You got to keep got to keep the treat bags crinkling. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's not wrong. Yeah, but. I feel like I, I took yeah. it and ran ran from you with it. What what other Well, yeah, no. Yeah. Um I I I think I think those are those are all important points to develop out of it. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's it's <laughs> this is an example of, you know, we can we can look at this media to see what got us here. Mm -hmm. and and to kind of analyze what what are the trends that led us to this point the problem is this doesn't this leaves us stuck here this doesn't give us a roadmap for like okay well what do we do to fix it right you know and that's that's what well, we need to try to figure out i guess well, i i i don't want to look to this medium for for a fix because the fix is hanging somebody who has diminished mental capacity so everybody can stop <laughs> hating each other yeah. out loud yeah yeah I, yeah you know i mean Full richard agree. dawson's no, dead so the... we can't have another family feud to fix this <clears throat> so yeah well we could but it'd be drew carey right handling it and like no and he's from um, ohio it's just not gonna work it's <laughs> is totally wrong sectionalist like yeah. Not. Yeah. Not. Not going to do the trick. Speaking of Rust Belt. Um. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's. It's sad to see that we've gotten to this place, and I'm going to. I'm. I'm not going to be able to watch the miniseries now without having this in mind. <laughs> but. Yeah, we got to stop making fun of people. But. Yeah. We also we we also need to hold them accountable for being shitty. I think it's still okay to make fun you of know? people who hold power. I don't think yes. it's okay to make fun yes. of people who don't. Yeah, I I yeah, that's that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. We, we shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't have been punching down, and we need to stop or sideways. Yeah, or sideways. Yeah, I mean, I or sideways. Some of that guided my my foray into making puns instead of doing mm, other jokes. Other other jokes. Yeah, yeah. I that makes sense. Yeah, I just I stopped wanting to make fun of people. I was like, can I do a set where I don't have anybody who's, you know, look at this asshole over here. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the answer is yes, sense. I can. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but then the audience doesn't laugh. 
Uh, <laughs> no, joking. They laugh just on the way home. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> they, oh, wait a oh, minute. Oh, yeah. Causeway Son jokes. of a bitch. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, what right. do you want people to read this time? Uh, what I want people to read this time, since we're talking about a saga of uh, multi-generational revenge, um, I want people to find and read uh, the Kurosagi Corpse Delivery Service by Eiji Otsuka. It is a horror manga series. And um, it is about the karmic weight carried by the dead and the the main characters, the the troop of college students who are the Kurosagi Corpse Delivery Service, um, help the dead uh, fulfill their their final wishes and, and unburden themselves of this karmic weight. And when we're talking about this story that has carried over so many generations and is so heavily entwined with, you know, unrequited or, or tortured love and, uh, you know, longstanding simmering hatred and, and murder, it just, it put me in mind of, of those concepts and Yeah. It's a it's a great series. It manages to be at some points genuinely scary and a lot of the time really darkly funny. Um, and so very highly recommended. Uh Kurosaki Corpse Delivery Service by A.G. Otsuka. How hmm. about you? You know, that reminds me of a movie called Heart and Souls with Robert Downey Jr. Um and okay. Kira Sedgwick and Tom Sizemore and Charles Grodin and Alfre Woodard. Actually, it's the second time I saw her and Robert Downey Jr. together. Um, okay. She was in the uh, uh, Avengers uh, Age of Ultron. She handed him the picture of her son. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that movie um, was, uh, what do you call it? Um, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, he's he's followed around by four ghosts um, okay. who, who died... Because the bus driver swerved, I think, to miss his mom or something. And so they were all pinned to him. And okay. they were supposed to spend all that time um working on what they left undone. And he was, you know, he was it, it, but they instead just they didn't know that. They didn't get the instructions. So they were just his buddies. And then they <laughs> realized that them being his buddies was fucking with him because Everyone else is like, you don't have four imaginary friends. And so they all abandoned him, um, which led him to be kind of an empty suit of a person and, and stuff like that. And the little boy who plays the the young young one, you know, like the eight year old being abandoned, breaks your fucking heart when he's like begging them to come back. Um, and then, you know, he figures out, uh, you know, they, they show back up and uh, he figures out how to make all their lives better. Um, just kind of reminded me of that so uh, if anybody wants mm, to watch mm-hmm. heart and souls from i think it's like 1994 or 93 um i think yeah, it I had to have been you were i think talking it was, about it what's that i looked it up while you were talking about it and oh. it's it's early 90s for sure because robert yeah. downey jr is very young 
Yeah. Well, it's before he did uh <laughs> is before he did Natural Born Killers. So it's gotta be like ninety-three or earlier. Oh, okay. Um, but okay. uh what I'm gonna recommend for reading is the true story of the Hatfield and McCoy feud by Lawrence D. Hatfield, who as best as I could figure out was the son of Ransom Hatfield. And I couldn't figure shit out as far as his relationship to any of the people like the Oh, really? Yeah. I had the hardest time like tracing it back. I kept running into ceilings. Um, so he is related. I don't know quite how it's gotta be some sort of distant cousin kind of thing, but, um, he, uh, I want to say he's, he died in the 1940s. Uh, he wrote the book in the early 1900s. Um, it's an old book that's been like reprinted. Um, it's really short, um, from like 70 something pages. Um, but, uh, it is an original work from back then. Uh, I cannot speak to the truthfulness of it or the historiography of it other than to say that it is a piece of history. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that that, that is, that is why it's worth reading. I'm not going to say that it's in any way accurate or or well done, but it is a piece of the history that came out. I want to say just before the cold wars did, uh, in terms of when in time it happened. So, um, let's see. I know that I can be found on March 1st at the Comedy Spot and every first Friday thereafter. If you go to sackcomedyspot.com, you can find tickets for Capital Punishment uh, starting March 1st. So please come to that one and then start making making the time to come to the subsequent ones so you can come see me slinging puns. Um, where can they find this podcast? Well, this podcast can be found on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. Uh, You're listening to us right now, so you found us somewhere, and that might include our website, wubbawubbawubba.geekhistorytime.com. Wherever it is that you found us, please uh, take a minute to subscribe and uh, give Damien the five stars he's earned uh, by putting himself through watching so much bad media uh over the course of his research uh the 1975 film alone um is is worth several stars just by itself um but uh if you go to our website you will find our archive and pick any one of any number of topics uh that may be of interest to you if you don't like one then there'll be two or three others that I'm sure uh, will, will spark your interest. Uh, and yeah, right now that's, that's the best place to, those are the best places to find us. I'm not going to talk about any, any social media accounts because I don't know how much longer uh, the places they are will exist. So. All right. Uh, well, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock, and until next time, keep rolling 20s.